0: Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places, and the human spirit that drives us all, to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. I am really excited about our guest today. Fred Armijo is the former police chief of Oceanside, California. Now, Fred was born and raised in Oceanside and started his career in lifeguarding for the city. And when the opportunity presented itself to join the police department, he was one of 10 selected out of 1,300 applicants. Fred proudly served the police department for 29 years, rising through the ranks and servicing to the top position as chief of police. He's married to his wife, Pam, and he has two grown children, Caitlin and Zach. Fred, I want to thank you for your service and dedication to the Oceanside community. Welcome to Surfacing Leaders.
1: Thank you. It's awesome to be here.
0: Yeah. So let's do this. Let's just start off. Give us uh, a little background, where you're from and how you got to be the Oceanside Police uh, Chief, and uh, and then we'll take it from there.
1: Sure. So I was born and raised in Oceanside. And through my early years, back and forth between Oceanside and 29 Palms, because my dad was a Marine. So I I probably went to three or four elementary schools back and forth between here and there. I went to Jefferson. It was junior high in Oceanside oh. back then and Lincoln junior high, which it was back then. I was at El Camino my freshman year and then sophomore through senior year at Oceanside High School. Uh, I played baseball at Oceanside. Actually, I played baseball my entire life. And my plan was to be a major league baseball player. And then when that didn't work out, I was going to be a Magnum PI. And clearly- You got the mustache, right? Well- Going right now. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Clearly that didn't work out. Right after high school, I started taking some classes at Miracosta, but I I had no direction. Got into lifeguarding. I spent a, a, a year at the pools for the city of Oceanside, bouncing back and forth between Brook Street and Marshall Street. And then four years on the beach also here in, in Oceanside. And I had the opportunity to work year round. You don't obviously get a lot of hours in the off season, but you still have to provide a level of service. So I, I got to, to do that. And throughout those four years, you know, I'm making relationships with, with, you know, people in different departments of the city. Okay, I have to stop you here. Yeah. What year is this? Oh, okay, so I graduated in 1989, Oceanside High School Pirate, and 90. It, so that that year, a pool lifeguard. The other four years, a beach lifeguard, and now we're I think in the summer of '93, and I I wanted something that obviously I needed a career. I needed something that right. was steady. I liked the idea and like the honor of wearing a uniform. Right. Never had any intention of being a police officer. Where'd that honor come from? Probably just the the military background from my, my grandfathers and, and, and my dad. So, my father's dad was a Bataan Death March survivor. And then my mother's dad wounded in combat in, in Korea. And I suppose it has to have been connected to their, their service that, that somehow sparked that desire in, in me. But I never, I never really had a desire to go into the military. I never had a desire to be a police right. officer. But then this opportunity comes up. And- I got to stay on this though.
0: Yeah. Because this is, this is going around in my head. All
1: right. So, this is the time of like Baywatch- right Yes. you a lifeguard yes it is Yeah. so here's the so, interesting so, thing so you were a hot body on the beach and well and i was a body was, on the beach you were <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> but but yes right around the time of baywatch in fact every summer there would be lifeguard competitions up and down the state put on by this guy Scott Hubble who was a production he, he did production work for the Baywatch series, right? which was, it was, I don't know, just kind of neat, but yeah, we're, we're up and down the state doing these lifeguard competitions, rowing dories, doing surf skis, um, paddle boards, run some runs, that, that, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, not not a, a David Hasselhoff esque sort of uh, <laughs> talent there, unfortunately. Yeah. So just in- interesting time. I was yes. I was
0: seeing something the other day and they had it was on Pamela Anderson, it's on Netflix, yeah. so, and they showed that Baywatch stuff and it was so prevalent, not only in the United States, oh, but Germany. overseas in Germany. Oh Hasselhoff Baywatch
1: is big there with, with Baywatch. Yeah, yes. well, yeah, yeah, he was
0: nuts. So yeah. so that that's interesting. So you
1: left that beautiful lifestyle. I did, <laughs> I did. Well, see, one of the things that I did while I was lifeguarding, I I did. They were kind of like a, an exchange program, so to speak. I spent uh, a day with San Diego City Lifeguards. I spent a day with Huntington Beach Lifeguards. I spent a day with LA County Lifeguards. LA County Lifeguards—that that's Baywatch—and they're a huge organization. Lots of full-time opportunities. And where I was at at the time, I didn't want to try to go somewhere. Outside of Oceanside for like a full time lifeguard benefited sort of position, and at in Oceanside, there's at that time there was a lifeguard captain and two or three lo- lieutenants. The rest of us were just part time like seasonals. So this recruiting campaign started up by the Oceanside Police Department. Okay, and they were looking to hire ten people, and back then it, it, there was a lot of competition. There was about thirteen hundred applicants. I was fortunate enough to be one of the ten. What do you think made you stand out
0: to be one of the ten?
1: I don't know i I'm sure I benefited from the fact that that I was homegrown at the time of the ten of us. I think I was the only homegrown person, so there's probably an element that gave me some advantage there working Already as a city employee, you make relationships with, with people who observe your, your quality of your work and your character, and that can be helpful during a background investigation. So I'm sure those things helped. Do you think there's anything that happened, as you look back on it now, do you think there's anything
0: you had as a lifeguard that were skills and traits that were transferable to the police department?
1: I would say definitely. I mean, it, they're both into public service. They're both in the the safety ish sort of field, okay. and your your there's a low real low level law enforcement responsibilities for lifeguards. the the permanent lifeguards had citation powers. so if, if somebody were violating any of the city codes, they can actually be written a citation by those permanent lifeguards. so real real low levels, but there's you know a little bit of a nexus there. but I I think that you know you have to engage with people. Public service is all about engaging with people, and so there's there's a little bit of a nexus there that can, can help jump you into that, that next step, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and I would imagine, too, you know, you have to engage with people, and sometimes they're having a good day, and sometimes they're not having a great day, even on the beach. And I, I've been on the beach, you know, a lot over the last 25 years up in Oceanside, and it's interesting. The lifeguards are so good. I mean, you could be sitting there on the beach, you know – Maybe having a beer. And they're right. like, hey, you gotta get rid of that. Yeah. They don't write you up. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. And so and so it was that it was that ability to, you know, maybe interact. And then the I think just one of the things that I think of is it's ultimately could come down to a life and death decision. Oh, that, it can. that the life it's it's like really quiet, really yes. quiet. And then it could escalate very quickly for a lifeguard and then probably same in the police department.
1: Yeah. There's definitely some level of, of nexus in, in there. I would say a big difference though is that typically in a life saving situation that a lifeguard is vol- is involved in they're not facing an element of danger focused towards themselves right they're fake- they're they're facing the the element of danger that mother nature provides right with respect to what's the surf like what are the currents like are we next to the pier are we next to 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 the jetties is there a boat nearby that's that's getting close to the surf line all things that that are very hazardous and, and dangerous and you have to be mindful but it doesn't it's not elevated to the sense that somebody's potentially going to attack you which does happen on on the law enforcement side unfortunately so
0: yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting because, you know, it's the foundation for how decision-making is done today. You know, the last three years on the business side, they found that uh, decisions are 65% more complex. Mm-hmm. And so you're just talking about, hey, you're going to make a different decision if the surf is, you know, this level versus another level sure. and, and take that more into account. So probably give you some risk assessment yeah. types of...
1: Yeah, if you think about people that that know what a rip current is and how to spot a rip current depending on the surf and the position of the, the, the people who are struggling in that current, um, bring a boat and sit it at the head of that rip and grab the bodies and take them onto the boat. Right. Versus trying to swim them back to shore. Again, depending on where they're at in the surf line. And those are decisions that, that aren't necessarily complex, but they need to be made quickly. And it also depends on knowing what resources are readily available so that, hey, if you can get them just outside of the surf line and get them calm and just wait a couple minutes for a boat to come by, then that's probably much better than trying to get them back to the surf line.
0: Share with us a story
1: in those four years that was pretty dicey and, and share what you did. Oh, my gosh. I would say that the more dicey situations had to do with people that were caught up on the rocks at one of the jetties. Or a boat in the surf line, and there was a. We used to get boats in the surf line, like South O, a lot, for some reason. And I, I remember there there was an early morning incident where I ended up being one of the, like the first on scene, and there was a couple of people in the water that I had to deal with before help got there. But then it's like, all right, what are we going to do with this boat? And so part of it is. Depending on where that boat is, you can, as an individual swimmer with fins on, you can get that boat outside of the surf line just by connecting to it. Again, I'm not talking about a ship (laughs) or a big yacht. You know, something small. But I I, I do remember in in that that one, it's like there's a level of intensity that that gives you the adrenaline that you need to make it through there because – there's a conditioning element too, right? The more conditioned you are, the more confidence you're you're gonna have on any situation like that. And then I'm if I'm remembering correctly, you know what, help got there. I think we got the boat offshore outside the surf line, and then the harbor patrol came and and got it back to the harbor. But but it was weird. There was a lot of a lot of South O boat incidents like that, and then Constantly at the the entrance to the harbor because that thing is so shallow.
0: That's interesting. I I, I walk south though
1: all the time. Never Maybe see, it's different now. You never know, see never see boats down there. Yeah, this is like thirty plus years ago. So who knows? Maybe things have changed a little bit. Plus, you know, gosh, we've lost so much of our beach. Now now I think more recently it it's been incidents at the harbor when it comes to boats trying to navigate through that real shallow channel, right? Which is pretty sketchy.
0: Yeah, um, so so you talked about conditioning, like to get to the and and the more conditioned you are. How did the lifeguard? I mean, you're you're young. What are you, early twenties?
1: As a lifeguard, I started when I was eighteen. Right. So you're in your early twenties. So, yeah. How how did they how did they prepare you and condition you? You know, it's interesting. I think in the ocean, I would say, for me and the people that I worked with, you know, getting in the water and pulling somebody to safety wasn't this is going to sound horrible probably but it wasn't as as nerve-wracking for me specifically as dealing with somebody who had a physical injury mm-hmm. that was suffering and you know something where the best that I can do is try to keep them stable or get them stabilized right. until paramedics get to can get to you for me that that kind of mental toughness piece was a bit more of a struggle because I've got this human organism in front of me that's in a world of hurt, and right. may, maybe at best I can keep them from getting worse until the true professionals get there and can start working on them. I felt I think mentally that was a bit more of a challenge than just being in the water. Right, but so that weird. that prepared
0: you for I mean what was going to come on land for you? Sure, later. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, okay, good. So thank you that was that was super interesting yeah. to listen to take us so you 1300 people apply you you know get the opportunity as one of the 10
1: take us through your journey sure so it through the application and testing process there's there's that number of people that you're competing with and then the hiring authority, Oceanside PD, then makes a, a decision on who they're going to put into backgrounds. So, that's really where a, a lot of the the filtering takes place. Um, you mean background checks? Yes. Okay. Okay. So, the background process is pretty intensive. And I can't think – I don't know how many professions get as deep as law enforcement does in when they're looking at a candidate. So, In addition to what's called a personal history statement, where it's like, hey, what did you do in the third grade to get yourself suspended? Or, you know, I'm being facetious on that, but, you know, you've got to disclose all of the things that, you know, maybe you're not so proud of. There's a neighborhood check where your neighbor's doors are getting knocked on because we want to know how you behave for real, right? There is an interview that takes place inside your residence. So, the background investigator goes inside your residence. Now, they're not opening doors. They're not pulling out drawers. But they're kind of getting a little bit of a lay of the land, right? And then there's there's discussions with people that you live with. There's an interview with a psychologist. There's a a polygraph examination. We go through your social media. So, for anybody that's listening that has somebody that has an, uh, you know, um, an interest in getting into to law enforcement, delete, they, be delete, careful what delete, you say, right? Delete. So you go through all of that. And then you have an interview with, usually like in, in OPD, you're going to have an interview with the captain who's who's in the hiring process. And they're going to have read your background report. They're going to know everything that that- How long is that interview? That interview can be, it's not- overly long it can be 30 35 40 minutes or so right because really it's about how do you communicate you know and what what is your what is your character we need to hire for character we'll teach you everything else oh. we can't teach a character you love have that. to bring that love that um so there's there's all that element. So then, if you make it past the captain, then it's in, in the way that the structure was in our department because it was small enough. Then it's an interview with the chief, and if you you interview well enough, you walk out of that interview with a job offer. And then there's a couple of steps after that before you're actually hired. And one of the things that I wanted at, when I was doing those interviews as as a chief. I wanted to see whether people had the right mindset that they're going to actually be looking out for people. And so, here's an example. I would, I would provide a scenario-based question, and it would be something like this. As the candidate, I want you to envision yourself on the job as a police officer. You're in your patrol car. You're out and about, and you get a radio call that there's a, there's a mom – um, who's there's some kind of family disturbance? You get on that scene, and it's a single mom. And the scenario that I built was single mom, teenage son. Mom is hard at work trying to provide, and she's struggling with her kid. So the kid doesn't have anybody but mom in the household. And so grades are starting to go south. She thinks he's starting to hang out with the wrong people and she's at her wit's end. And so, I want to hear from the candidate, what might your conversation be with this kid? And so, the people who answered in a way that I was looking for is such that, look, you need to take that kid aside and try to relate with them. See if you can, you know, you're not going to have days, right? You're you, Maybe you have half hour, hour, depending on the the nature and the dynamics of what's going on. But See if you can get through a little bit and figure out what, what's going on with that kid. Do what you can to make a connection. Some type of common connection. Something, okay. right? And 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 part of my language. But what I was looking for is that kid leaving that situation knowing that there's somebody else out there that gives a damn about them. And then so, then the follow-up question was this. All right, so you, you kind of stabilize the situation on that call um. about a month goes by, what might you do? Because you have a lot of, um, not, not free time, but you have a, a lot of uh, ability to, to do follow-up kind of activities in between calls for service. So, what I was looking for is that they would say, well, you know what, I'm, I would reach back out and, and see how, you know, get the mom's take on, on how things are going and, you know, have a, have a follow-up conversation with, with the kid and see how he's doing. Maybe you were able to convince that kid to get into athletics, as an example, or something. But leave that situation with that kid knowing that somebody else out there gives a damn. Because in my experience, that might be the only thing that kid needs to to change his or her dire- direction in life, right? Love it. And so, my questions were based on that kind of stuff. I wanted the kind of people who didn't look at that situation as if, oh, this kid's a brat, he just needs to be put in timeout or whatever, something like sure. you might envision from a couple of decades ago that doesn't solve a problem or doesn't get that family dynamic on a path where there's a, a higher chance of, of things kind of making a turn down, down a better road instead of just being stuck in this cul-de-sac.
0: Oh, let's stop just for a second here. You just laid out a lot of great stuff. How long is the process that you just talked about from the unit? You, you get the opportunity as one of the 10.
1: They're doing all these different checks, et cetera. What's the, what's the timeline of that? It varies. You know, our goal was to have a, a, a two-month turnaround time, but it can vary b- based on volume. We – when I left the department five months ago or so now, I think we were down 16, 17 sworn police officer positions out of a, an authorized number of like 226, 227. So, that's almost like – that's easily an entire shift. Okay. Not there. So, we were really taxing our background investigators. We made a decision that we will not compromise on, on quality. Good. We will not compromise on character. And I would, I would and I, I'm sure the, the, the leaders that are still doing the work feel the same way that, you know, if we have to run lean, we're going to run lean. We're not just going to put somebody in, in this kind of position because they have a pulse. It's important that we find good quality people because if you don't, you're going to have bad outcomes for sure. You've seen examples of that across the country.
0: You're going to pay one way or
1: the other. You, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How many calls a year? Oh, there's there's over 100,000 calls a year. And, I think we how average many are,
0: how many are 911?
1: In the 70,000 range. From yeah, it's 70, crazy. 70,000. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Talk about walking into disruptive environments all the time. All the time. And and yes, you, you know, as you as you continually develop your skills and abilities as a police officer, you you get better at handling the baggage, but it's far from where it it needs to be when it when it comes to the the mental wellness of of officers and i and i shouldn't i I shouldn't focus on on officers because dispatchers are on the front lines. They're just not physically there our community services officers and I'll explain more about that they experience a level of that the the field evidence technicians who do the crime scene processing and, and respond to calls they experience you 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 don't really work for the police department and and are protected and shielded from the the kinds of, of traumas that the frontline crew face because there's like these shared Traumas that that exist, so no one's really immune to it. But you do have certain positions that are truly on the on the front lines, and it's not just officers; it's it's others as as well. I
0: I just want to make a couple points here for people who are listening, because some of the keynotes that you put down that every human being needs to be aware of. We we say we say everyone in a company is a leader. So if you have five hundred employees in your company, person who's been there. The owner of the company is a leader, but the person who's been there for a day is a leader too.
1: Well, let me touch on that. So, one of the things that we have we have positional leadership within the department, right? But what I what I have have talked about with 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 our crews is that even if you don't have positional leadership responsibilities, you're leading yourself. Ah, oh. oh, you're leading yourself, and that's that I think is often overlooked. I want to
0: delve a little bit further into operating in disruptive environments and, and, and how chaos can come out of nowhere as it relates to the approach that you teach, you know, highly disruptive environment. Is there, is there, you know, is there, is there a approach you have like, Hey, assess and, and, you know, next step is this and that, how, how, how does that work? You know, because, if you got ten, what'd you call them? 10 10, ten, um, ten. They're just geographical regions. if right, their beats.
1: That the right.
0: So you got everyone dispersed, and you know they're they're part of a team. So this is like a little bit like hybrid work. It's like people yeah. are dispersed to to do what they have to do. What do you teach to handle disruptive environments? Sure. Because every every nine eleven call is every nine eleven call. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, it's there's there's things that are very basic, like somebody needs to get on scene and and get with whoever called because most likely they're gonna be the best source of information at least initially. And then they need to share that information. And that first person is doing a lot. They're gathering information. They're for instance, let's say somebody's house just got burglarized, they came home and and the the burglar ran out the back. So now you know, an officer gets there trying to gather information from that, that homeowner. What did the person look like? What what were they wearing? Des- describe them. What direction did they go in? Anybody else around? Did, did, you know, if you know, did you have weapons in your home and, and are they still there or, or- – did the person run off with them? And and so anyway, you're gathering all of that kind of stuff, but then now you're sharing that information out. So when you get there, it, it's, it's an info gathering mission, and then it's a containment sort of mission. And then you have, so it's information contain, and then ultimately you search. And all of those things are coordinated. And so it takes resources. So it doesn't sound like it's Very complex. It's not, and it can't be because the most difficult decisions need to be made through a contemplative process. And on these kinds of scenes where there's some chaos going on, the decision-making processes and the things that need to be decided upon initially need to be simple. It's like, keep it simple, stupid, that whole KISS con- yeah, yeah. concept, yeah. because a, a lot of those are almost like a, a a yes, no, this, that sort of decision-making process. The person ran north, okay, I I know that I need an officer on, on Mission Avenue and another officer at, you know, Coast Highway, because that's the general direction. And you start building up a, an area of containment. And then you know that, okay, it's, at some point, we need a team that's going to actually sort of try to track down where this person went. Those those are like you know what your resources are. You know how to use them. So then they're all right. It's a it's a this that sort of decision making process. When it comes to, let's say that you have a potential suspect in a rape, and you're in an interview, and you and your partner are interviewing the suspect. Right, that. You know, how you ask the questions, at what point you throw in a question, you're you're going to have some strategy behind that. That's not a problem-solving sort of issue, but it's more contemplative, right? right? And it's not as fluid so that you can take right. more time to kind of what-if situations and figure out a game plan. the the, um, the game plan on the front end is very, very simple. And even a hasty plan is better than no plan meaning meaning like we've got three officers responding to this call a hasty plan is me getting on the radio saying okay i'll, I'll take primary i'll be i'll be contacting this person you know so and so you be my cover for instance let's say that we know the person was armed with a bat based on what the caller said to our dispatcher well it could be me saying all right when we get on scene i'll have taser Partner, you you have a beanbag shotgun as an example, and then um, the other officer will have lethal, and so now you you have role designations so that you don't end up in a situation where ideally you don't end up in a situation where it becomes lethal, and now you have three officers shooting. Right? Maybe there's a a, a need for that, but probably not if you have role designations in place because you've seen there's been far too many examples of multiple officers shooting when when you really analyze it it wasn't necessary right. one, one officer right, right? N- and not in all situations and and there's sure. probably certain circumstances where where you where you need more than one officer
0: you know, love your an easy hasty plan because we yeah because yeah. we teach what's called 4070 and it, if you have above 40% probability that you have with the information you have, you're gonna be forty percent right. Mm. We ask people to take the next step. Doesn't mean you have all steps done. Sure. So that's what you're sort of doing. Yeah. I'm not saying it's 40% from the police force. Right, but, right, right. But but it's that's what you're doing. Like, hey, when we get there, this is our first, this is our next step. Yeah. And then but we don't we don't know the next step after that or the next step after that. And then it's just shifting it, but you have at least a first thought. Yes. And in 70 is if you waited till you get above seventy, you waited too long. Okay. Just for the next, and 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 the 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 thing that we tell you know businesses is hey, when you're going to make a ten million dollar loan, that's got to be a hundred percent. When you're going to fire a firearm, you probably got to be really. Yes. You can't be forty-seven. Right, right. Yeah. But right. it was it, we just say that unfreezes someone to go hey, I can take a next step. Sure. And because a lot of times today people are. They want to have the right answer all the time. Decision-making is so complex that they freeze. And by the time they freeze, all the variables have changed and, and then it's, it's done.
1: I really think that the advent of social media and other information technology sources has, has created a society in which they can get what they want when they want it which was yesterday, right? Instead of having to do some research, open up a, people aren't even going to know what this word is, an encyclopedia, you you can type in a couple of words in Google and there's your answer, right? We'll we'll put a
0: definition at the end of the Yes.
1: But but I guess what I'm going, getting at is that it's kind of erasing the concept of patience and, and, and using time and space to more thoughtfully come to a decision because, I think a lot of decisions are being made right now, and and not and not to to use the title against the program. But I think there's a lot of surface level thinking, ah. and not enough peeling back the layers. Yeah, right. And it's difficult to peel back the layers if if you're trying to give somebody an answer yesterday because there's so used run, to
0: cortisol's it. running through you. Yes, the amygdala is going fear, stress hormones.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you said it earlier. You said slow, slow it down. Mm. Like if we can just slow it down a little bit when we first get to the scene. And th- and there's different things. Like if you get to the scene, someone's firing at you. It's a, it's it's not. It's sure. not. Yeah. It's probably not slowed down too much. Mm-hmm. But w- what what are you teaching the officers? And what would you say? What's the what's the Two or three things that people, you know, people do, police officers do when they get to the scene to maybe help slow it down.
1: So, uh, part of it is how do you transition or, or, or translate, so to speak, the idea of of walking into a situation and how much are you picking up versus running into a situation. What are you going to miss? Right, you're going to miss a lot. Now, the the slowing it down piece. That is, so, here's an example. Let's say that you have an individual who is armed and has threatened to to shoot his or her loved one. And you get on scene and you are able to determine that that, that person's the only one in the house. Do you bust through the door and go get them? or do you set up a containment around that house attempt to communicate with that person that's like this slowing down process
0: right cuz you could bust through the door
1: yeah 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 which would which would be unnecessary because right. who is that person going to hurt right people that might be immediately outside of the house that could be in harm's way based on whatever kind of weapon that the individual has so if they have a high power a high caliber rifle well your your containment area is going to be you know pretty far if they have a knife not so much right what what can they reach out and touch and then you, you you adjust from there but the concept being that can can we isolate the situation such that nobody else is in danger we still have to get this person into custody right because there was a crime committed um but we don't need to bust through a door and put ourselves unnecessarily at risk we can slow things down we can make that person's environment maybe not so comfortable for them that it, they'll kind of tire, them all, they're t- tire themselves out and and, and you know cooperate and, and, and surrender you can't do that without slowing the situation down when it's the kind of situation that you can slow down right you, you and, and and that comes with controlling your your own initial actions and decision making if nobody if nobody else is in harm's way at the moment, why do you need to go in that house to get that person? It doesn't make sense
0: yeah, oh, fantastic stuff, really, really good. When we talked the other day, you had said that there were you know three things that you wanted the people in your stead, and you know said there's three hundred people share
1: with us what those what those three things are because i think they're really powerful it evolved and so i'll share with you briefly the the evolution was that when when i started in the position as chief i started doing weekly video updates just a solo little mini podcast that i would email out to everybody in the department because i wanted people to hear directly from me not just organizational updates, but also it, it gave me the opportunity to recognize good work. And I I started doing that. And at some point early on, I ended every video message with, be nice. And over time, probably, probably close to my first year in, it evolved into, I started saying, work hard, be nice and change lives. And the funny thing is that if I switch that up a little bit and say, be nice, work hard, and change lives, there becomes an acronym, BWC. And have you heard that before, BWC?
0: No. Should I know it? Can we say it?
1: Body-worn camera. Oh. Every cop has a body-worn camera nowadays. Got it. And so I didn't really I, – I should have started to, to push it that way, but I didn't need to because it's simple, right? People easily remember – Work hard, be nice, and change lives. That's my expectation. So that would be how I would end every video message. But then I also incorporated it into my hiring interviews where in addition to, you know, laying out a scenario question, I would also share with that applicant those expectations so they knew exactly from even before day one what the chief of police expected out of them. Um and my thought is, and this may sound um, awful in, in some respects, but you know, we we got on the the vision, mission statement, core values thing in right. uh, in the '90s. And I think that's kind of thing when that sure. that evolved. And I, I do think that there is um, there's relevance for that kind of stuff, uh, but at the same time, I think a lot of it's ink on a paper. I really do, and and so I I to myself, I'm thinking all right, you know what, if somebody is working hard and they're being nice to people and they're focusing their efforts on changing lives, they're going to hit all these marks on this piece of paper on the wall, right? And, and they're not going to have to memorize some vision, mission, and statement of core values because they, measure, they memorized work hard, be nice, change lives. So I wanted to intentionally keep it simple based on my earlier you know training, keep it simple, stupid, kind of thing, and then I felt that I needed to repeat it a lot to make sure that there was nobody in the organization who didn't know what those expectations are and so i i i like i said I, I evolved that message on the video messages over the course of several months and then probably for the last dozen or so video messages it was it was solidly in there as a closer and i and i truly believe it if you name the profession where working hard being nice and changing a life isn't going to help make that organization successful
0: that's so powerful you know yeah
1: yeah and here's the thing that i so i'm a star wars geek and i'm proud of it and every video message has some kind of element of Star Wars in it. It could have been the T-shirt I was wearing. It could have been a figure I had sitting on the corner of the office, just inside the camera view. So there was a, a, a was little thing like "I am your father." No, but my very last, <laughs> my very last video message, I did put on Boba Fett's helmet to, to yeah. So, um, but no, e- even subtle things that only. The, the chances of somebody picking it up, you know, they're a fan. So the cool but thing is- that, But did that make it cool though?
0: What, I think where it they helped. Go To the end and they go, they go, hey, did you pick up like the subtleness of- I'm pretty the sure it helped.
1: Yeah. Yes. Because then what I would do, and I wish I would have done more of this because early on I was doing them every week. And then at some point it's like every couple of weeks. And then it was like every month. And it's like, I, I need to build a, the infrastructure- for me to do this every week. Because I think it's important. And, and I didn't. And if I were to redo it. I would I'd focus on that. So that my messages were coming out. Every week. Every week. One of the cool. Th- I think it's cool. One of the things that I did. Is I started taking them on the road. Meaning. I would go to other people's workstations. When they weren't there. Set up the camera. And do my video message. So they'd
0: look and see. Oh is that my workstation? Yeah.
1: And then I had these. Boba Fett has a certain insignia. On, on his armor. That I had patches for. So I would pin that up. At their workstation, so you can kind of see it in the background. But then when they came in, they'd have that as a little, I don't know, memento or oh, Or just also awesome. some some geeky little thing. But I, I did it because I wanted I wanted to find another way to get people to to watch the videos and create a little bit of buzz. Now was it or an organizational buzz? I I doubt it, but there's certainly an element out there a little bit like Find waldo you know you're, you're, yeah. you, you I'm going to watch this video to the end oh, you know I I did one where so we have this saying service with pride that's on the on the cars i created a i put together this magnetic strip and it said this is the way which is a reference in the mandalorian right. series yeah. and and i put that on the car and that was what was in the the easter egg in the background of of, of the video awesome. but i i figured you know what i i know that the longer I speak, the more people I'm going to put to sleep. So, I need to keep these things like three to five at most. And then I want to do something where some some people will will get a kick out of it. You know, I wanted an element of not serious. Right. You know? And then I think it's super important for the leader, for people to be able to see the leader as just another person. Authenticity. And, and I think I think me right. being a Star Wars geek kind of helped like – You know, people have their own, you know, geekisms, so to speak. And that's just mine. And I figured, you know, I'm going to do that because I'm just as human as the next person. And I want people to see that, you know? Right. So.
0: The other day we were having a conversation and you talked about how you love leadership. Some of the investment that was made in you and some of the courses that you went to, you know, in Boston and Israel. Uh, Take us through those. Take us through, like, what what the course was. Why it was important that you went there and and you know things that
1: you learned. So the course in Boston was the Senior Management Institute for Police. It, it's a three-week program. It's it's actually held at at Boston University, so we stay in the dorms there. But what happens is you're 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 surrounded by leaders who are who are typically in at least a, a management level position in the organization. And you're exposed to high level thinkers from MIT, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. And I think I shared this with you, you know, the the concept every every in at least in California, there's there's mandated training that goes on in terms of, you know, what has to take place in an academy and then what has to take place on some level of frequency. Racial profiling training is one of those. And for me, as a younger officer going through those things you know it can be a little bit off putting in the sense it's like as i think to myself right. knowing knowing who i am it's like i'm not a racist why do i need this training i you know i i don't care what people just need to to live their lives and if i can help them do that then that's that's my job right and so i was exposed to a concept at at this program in boston where they really focused on the bias side hmm. that whole concept really Opened my eyes to hey look we we need to really talk more about biases and and do what we can to acknowledge those biases and not let them impact how we interact with people so that we're creating situations where it's unfair right, right. and so we got exposed to a lot of different stuff that was like one of my my biggest takeaways probably a couple of years after that in 2013. I got to go to Israel. It was a part of the Western States Counterterrorism Seminar, sponsored by the ADL. There's about 15 law enforcement executives from the West Coast, a couple of sheriffs, some chiefs of police. I was our admin captain at the time, and, and I was fortunate enough to, to go. I think I shared with you the, the idea of going to Israel was, was very intriguing to me, but I was scared. I was scared. I was scared, I was scared that we were going to be flying in and it was going to be uh, an RPG hit oh, the plane. You know, that kind of stuff. And then once we're there, it's like, oh my gosh. You know, because there's 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 conflict, right? Yeah. I got there and the first morning, I'm running. I went on a run through the streets of Jerusalem. And I'm like, this is just like New York, just without the high rises. And then I felt safe, which I didn't envision feeling in the lead up to this. But huh. what was cool was that. We're on this tour. We're, we're getting like incident debriefs and discussions from, from IDF officials and National Police Force officials. We got tours from Elat at the southern tip. It's like there's a fence line border with, with Egypt right there, all the way up to the Golan Heights where Hezbollah is on one side. And, oh, wow. and, and at the time, Syria was just starting to kick off. And you could actually see plumes way, way off in the distance. Um, what year is this? This is 2013. Yeah. And what, what, one of the takeaways that I got from that, that, that I, I wasn't ever able, I didn't put enough effort into trying to bring this concept to OPD, but they drill and drill and drill. Drilling is different than training. Right? Share, well, share, so, share training training is your learning concepts. Right. Right? Maybe you have to demonstrate the concept. Drill, you're putting into action. Now, it may be that it's still s- simulation-based. Sure. But drilling, it's like, all right, here's the study. Now, here's the test. Right. And And I think drilling really does kind of push into that repetition space. And... If you drill, what I saw when I was back there, drilling makes so many things second nature and things evolve in a way that everybody else involved knows what's next right. and, and how to address and deal with it. And so I think the concept is so close to repetition, right. but this, it, but it's drilling. And one of my regrets is not trying to figure out how we bring that in, yeah. into this profession so that it's it's, hey- yeah, we've we've done the training piece. That's educational. That's put into action. Right into action, but not not at at that kind of real life level. Just just a step below it. The biggest leadership, the most intense, I would say, is is the FBI Academy. In terms of, I went there at the end of 2019. That's a 10 week program. You live there at the academy. You're taking undergrad and and graduate level courses. And you have to produce work. And it's a variety of, of concepts. So, there, the FBI was trying to push wellness. So, they, there were some courses on wellness. They had courses on, on crisis communications, both in terms of like if you are the public spoke per, spokesperson and something bad happened, how do you deliver messages and keep the, the community informed? As well as, you know, how do, how do you deal with communicating with, with people in, in, in crisis? Physical fitness, Oh my gosh! They're like on the leading edge of mm. of of fitness, and their facilities were awesome. No donuts. That's a
0: bad
1: old. No, I'm pretty sure there. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there were donuts, but I took it. I took it at like I'm going. I'm like, I loved it because the way I got my college degrees was non traditional. So I never had that dorm ish right. thing, and so I'm up in the morning in the gym or in the pool because they've got a, a pool there. Going to my coursework. I never had dessert. I always had good quality meals. And people will complain about the cafeteria there. I loved it because I got good quality stuff. It was healthy. And then at at night, I'm doing another workout and I'm in the library. I'm like, I'm getting my college experience out of this. But you're interacting with about 230 to 40 people, law enforcement leaders from around the world. Now, the bulk is from the United States. About – 40ish or so are from other areas around the world. One of the guys that that I had a lot of interaction with was from Iraq. And his responsibility, one of his missions as, as a law enforcement leader there, he had to bring the concept of community policing to his area in Iraq. that was like in the northern area. This is 2019. Well, when he did that, so I met him in 2019. What year is this? It was probably a couple of years before that. That was like one of his, one of his jobs. The funny thing is like – my my belief is that unless you're interacting with people from other cultures and um, other parts of the world, what, you, you think that there's an element of they're just different people on some level. They're not like me because they're from elsewhere. Right. He's sitting next to me on his iPhone, you know, having conversations with his kids at home. And I'm like, that's me. He's from Iraq, you know, awesome. a, a different part of the, but, but he's like, that's me. Now, clearly I think, you know, in terms of, of risk, and And significance and impact you know he's he's in a different situation, a different level wow. I would say, but uh yeah people all so there's an element of that that exposed me to different people in a way that allowed me to see like, hey, we're all the same, right, you know, we're all the same, but then I really enjoyed the the coursework that was a, that was an awesome experience
0: all right, this is great um so tell us a failure you had as a leader and in-
1: how did it change you? Oh, gosh. So this failure came at the end, and I wish it would have happened sooner. This is the concept of blind trust. I had engaged in giving somebody blind trust. Like, you know what? I, I, I know they're doing what, what they should be doing, and they're they're pushing the organization forward. And I did a disservice by, by – and not just with this individual, really with anybody – we, I believe, we all need something outside of ourselves to help kind of keep us honest. And that that doesn't have to be done in a way where somebody's looking over your shoulder. There's a way to do that. I truly believe where, you know, you're just sitting down and getting like updates and situational updates and, you know, progress reports and using those as elements and opportunities to kind of coach the person um, if, if if needed. But at the same time, making sure that… You're staying aware and that systems, processes, programs, initiatives are actually moving forward. I, I learned that too late. But before I left, I made it a point to share with leaders what I thought were some of my failures to, at the department, hoping that they don't make those same mistakes. I would say another one, it has to do with this concept of stick So, what I mean by that is when you have some kind of initiative, program, plan that you're putting together, there were were initiatives that that I had started that I got to about 90%, maybe 80%, and then I went on to something else, and I needed to – this is – this is a bad example, but I needed to go to 105%, okay. right? You need to go past it and then look back and reevaluate. I, there were some initiatives where I, I got to 80, 90 and like, okay, I'm going to start this one now. That one's kind of off and, and doing its own thing, but it wasn't.
0: Yeah. So how do you think being a – I don't even know if it's the right term anymore. Is it police person now?
1: Well, no. I, now it's, it's a farmer. Farmer? <laughs> So, I've, you know, after I I retired, I had thought even before retirement that when I do retire, I want to try to engage in something different because I feel like I'm the kind of person who I need, my mind needs, I'll just use the word problem, my mind needs problems to work on and I feel if I'm not engaged, then I'm going to be wasting my life. Right. and and so we 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 have a couple of acres in Montana and there's a hay pasture on it that I'm going to I'm going to learn how to farm my, my wife and I already went to this uh Western I'm sorry Montana State University has an agricultural research lab uh that's like 20 minutes away from us and they hosted an event when we were there last week that we went to and it's it's amazing when you don't think about it but it's not just put a seed in the ground and watch it grow. Right. There truly is a science behind this that needs to be learned, as, you know, if you want to be successful. So, I'm looking forward to that sort of next chapter. I don't – I think I'm a former police person, maybe. I mean, there, you do something 29 years, it never truly goes away. Right. But not that I want it to. I just – I want to engage in something different as a, like a second career. We just started doing some work with one of the number one leaders in the world
0: for seeds. No way. Yeah, Illinois Seed Foundation, uh-huh. and it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. They they produce the seed that fifty percent of the sweet corn that's eaten in the United States is produced. And uh-huh. I've started learning some stuff about. And they're, they all they have all backgrounds. Yeah. It. And exactly what you're talking about. They went to Idaho and they yeah. did all of the Cornell and how to make beets. And yeah, like you said, it is, you know, it is way more yeah. because is it, is there a drought year? Is it this, the-
1: What's the chemistry in the soil? Yeah. You know? Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. So it's not like- So we'll, you we'll keep you updated. Yeah. And we'll bring you in on a couple meetings. So yeah, that's, I'm looking forward to it because I, I know that it's not just- you know, getting a little tractor and, right. and, and moving soil. I know that there's, a, there's, there's stuff that I don't know that I need to learn that I'll, I'll figure out, right? And I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that's great. Awesome.
0: What are leadership skills that you use daily or you used daily, because now you're going to be a farmer, yeah. but that
1: you use daily that you can share uh, with the audience? So I I think it's important that you never put somebody in a position that you're not willing to occupy yourself, right? So if something needs to get done, don't ask somebody else to do it if you wouldn't do it yourself. In any opportunities that that you can reasonably seize upon where you're interacting with the people doing the work, do that. Because you don't want people to just see you as you know you're you're the leader of the organization. you want people to see you as oh they're they're human too, mm-hmm. right because then maybe when there's some kind of message that you're trying to deliver, they're not going to be stuck on that's just the talking head. It's like oh right. he he was in our briefing yesterday you know asking questions and answering questions um I think that's important. The other piece is put people in positions. That expose them to things that maybe they're not necessarily comfortable with, but they're going to need those skills as they rise higher higher in the organization. So, the example about the Police and Fire Commission meetings where captains are, are right. doing that level of presentation and interaction, I think, is important. And then the, the other thing I think is super important is whenever and most decisions, I think, fall into this category. Whenever your decision-making process can be inclusive, make it so. Most decisions in an organization aren't just some person at the top saying, this is what we're going to do. It's after you have collective thought. Because if I come with an initiative, right, and I present it to the, the management team, they need to be able to pick it apart. And if they find a weakness, shame on me for not having seen it and let's figure out how to shore it up. The more... I think people that can reasonably be a part of those decision-making processes, processes, the higher likelihood you're going to come up with good stuff. Right. And you're going to have more buy-in because they had a seat at the table, right? Right. And that's super, super important. Where there's participation, there's buy-in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think I what I tried to do, what I tried to tell people, it's like, it's important to get the right people on the bus, But it's more important to get the right people in the right seats on the bus. Because someone might believe that they're ready for this particular seat, but organizationally, maybe not. Maybe they need to be on this other seat. And over time, they'll get into that seat. And you have to pay attention to those kind of things. And, And those are things that I think are super, super important. Well, listen,
0: this has just been fantastic. We thank you for your time. We thank you for your 29 years of service and impact to uh, Oceanside community. And I really love the, you know, work hard, be nice, and change lives. So, again, thank you so much for being here. I um, appreciate you're, it.
1: You're welcome. This is awesome. I appreciate the invite.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Surfacing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, make it a great day.